Good morning, everybody. Great to see you here today. Uh, if you're in the house or if you're online, we are really excited that you're here with us today, worshiping with us. And I guess we can officially say it's Christmas time, right? It's officially Christmas. It's after Thanksgiving. It is clear runway to Christmas. Are you excited about that? Are you glad it's Christmas time coming up? All right. Yeah. Absolutely. Some of you have already got your tree done. You've already got your house lights on. Some of you did that in October. All right. I know you were just like, man, let's get this year over with and let's just do it. Uh, but man, one of the things I love about Christmas are the Christmas movies. Any of you Christmas movie fans out there? Yeah. Okay. I love the Christmas. So I thought what I would do is start off today and just, just get kind of the blood flowing, get your memory back. Uh, to see if we do a little Christmas movie pop quiz, all right? Pop quiz at church, all right? So you, there's gonna be some competition between the person next to you, that's okay, as long as there's no wagering, okay? So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put a picture on the screen and then you're gonna call out the name of the movie. Now, I just wanna warn you, some of these are familiar, some of these may not be as familiar to you, especially based on your age, okay? Anyway, just saying, uh, here we go, ready? You ready? Okay, here we go. First picture. Well, I hear a lot of murmuring. Okay, yeah. Miracle on 34th Street. Uh, I had one gal say, I'd never heard of that movie before. I'm like, poor child. All right, anyway. Uh, they did a remake of it. Anyway, it's great. Oh, yeah. Okay, number two is. All right, very good. That was an easy, easy peasy one. Okay, number three is. Rudolph, all the claymation things. Don't you just love those one? Those, all right, here's the next one. Okay, yeah, It's a Wonderful Life is, uh, is that one. Little Jimmy Stewart in there. Here's another one. I love he's eating mac and cheese. I just love that, that scene. All right, yeah, Home Alone. And then one more, here we go. What's that? Polar Express, all right. Give yourselves a hand, good job. Uh, on the movie pop quiz. Okay, so we, uh, we love these movies, right? But we don't like believe in these movies, right? These are, these are movies that entertain us, that make us feel good, but that we don't base our faith on these movies, of course, because they're just movies, right? They're just stories. They're, they're myths, they're fables, right? They're not actually true. However, there are some people that actually put the story of Jesus in the category of these movies that they say, well, you know, the story of Jesus, yeah, I mean, we've heard of Jesus and so on, but that's not really true. That's not really factual. That's not really historical. They're just myths. It's just a fable. It's something that's been made up. In fact, several years ago, there were some atheist groups that put out billboards all across the country that had a picture of the nativity under the banner that said fake news. You know what fake news is, right? Something that's made up, something that has an agenda to it. And they said, really, the story of Jesus is just fake news. It's just something that the church has told you that's not really real. In fact, there was a study done in the UK about four years ago, and it was asking questions about Jesus. Get this, 22% of those surveyed said they, they believe that Jesus was a mythical creature, all right, a mythical person that never really lived, 22%. Another 17%, they weren't sure if Jesus was real or not. So around 40% of those in the UK had no sense that Jesus was an historical person. 
that, that's a phenomenon that's beginning to grow in our society, what they call the Jesus mythicism or the Jesus mythology, this idea that Jesus is really a myth, he's not really real. And so as a Christian, you can't really even, uh, when you talk to a, an unchurched friend or someone that's not a Christian, you can't assume that they even believe that Jesus existed, much less that the birth narrative is actually true. So here's the big question, is it really true? And if it is really true, how do we know? What kind of confidence can we have that the story we have about Jesus in the Bible, the story about his birth is actually real, is actually true? That's what I wanna talk about today. So once you get your Bible, once you open it up to the book of 2 Peter in the back of the New Testament, 2 Peter uh, chapter one. And uh, I wanna do like I almost always do, kind of set the context for what we're gonna read because again, we're not reading the whole book right now. We're just kind of looking at a piece of it. So I wanna try to give you the context of what we're reading. Peter was one of the 12 disciples, right? He was arguably uh, probably the leader of the disciples. He's the one that preached at Pentecost where the church was born, 3,000 people saved. Uh, Peter was in the inner circle of Jesus. And yet as he's writing here, he's, he's now, this is way after Jesus' death, after Jesus' resurrection. Peter is, is on the cusp of being put to death as a martyr for his faith. Because the, all the Christians around, scattered throughout Rome and, and Asia Minor, are under severe persecution. So they're suffering greatly under external persecution. Nero is breathing down their necks, and, and many of them are being put to death, many in very grotesque ways. Many of them are losing their jobs or ability to have income. And so the church is suffering under external persecution. In addition to that, the church is also suffering because false teachers are infiltrating their ranks. And, and really calling into question the truthfulness of the gospel itself. There are preachers that are coming in and saying that these things that they've been taught are not necessarily true. So they're really fighting two battles, one on the outside and one on the inside. And by the way, this isn't really too far from where we are today. We see Christians all around the world that are facing physical persecution. Even in the United States, we're seeing the heat turned up more and more, seems like every year against Christians here. But we also see the infiltration of false teachers, uh, cults. We see the, the emergence of progressive Christianity that's happening right now, that it's really calling into question some of the fundamentals of the faith. So where they were is not too far off from where we are today. And they're probably asking the question, how do we know this is true? I mean, if we're gonna give our lives for this, how do we know? How do we know that what you're telling us, Peter, is right? How do we know that this, these stories about Jesus, the gospel of Jesus is real? How do we know? And so Peter is gonna kind of lean in on this question to try to answer that for them, to give them confidence that this Jesus is worth living for, he's even worth dying for. And so he addresses that in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, beginning of verse 16. And he's gonna give us three pieces of evidence, okay? Three pieces of evidence. Now, by the way, this is not exhaustive. There are lots of other pieces of evidence we could look at, but I'm, we're just gonna look at what Peter said today. These three pieces of evidence that are profound, okay? So let's look at verse 16. This is the word of God. He said, for we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, I want you to write down the words eyewitness testimony. 
eyewitness testimony. He said, we didn't tell you myths. We weren't telling you some crazy Christmas story, some made up fable. We're not bringing that to you. In fact, what I'm bringing to you is, 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 are facts because I've seen them. This is eyewitness uh, testimony. You know, it, it's surprising to some people to understand that the Gospels, which are the four books in the New Testament that really tell us about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the first four books of the New Testament that are called the Gospel books, that many do not know that these are based on eyewitness testimony. A lot of times people say, oh, well, those were written hundreds of years later by different people under pseudonames. No, 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 no. These are actual eyewitness testimonies. Matthew was a tax collector. He followed Jesus, and his life was radically changed, and he wrote down meticulous notes of the things that Jesus said and did. Mark was not in the 12. He was not in the inner circle of Jesus. He came along later, but he was a scribe for Peter, the one that's writing this letter that we're looking at today. And Peter dictated what he saw with his own eyes in the gospel of Mark. Luke was a doctor. He was not one of the 12 disciples either, but he lived during that time period and he acted more like an embedded reporter that interviewed all the disciples, the mother of Jesus, all the people around him uh, so that he could write an orderly account. Luke is the most historically accurate, the most chronologically accurate of all of the gospels. And in fact, he wrote a two volume set, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts together. So, so he is writing a meticulous account of the life of Christ to sustain uh, that, that um, story, that gospel story, or to preserve it. And then lastly, you have John. John was the inner circle of Jesus, one of the disciples of Jesus. And John actually wrote the gospel of John. He wrote that one much later uh, and often fills in the gaps that some of these other guys didn't mention. A lot of stuff at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, a lot of stuff at the end of Jesus' ministry, even post-resurrection accounts we have in the Gospel of John. And so these are all based on eyewitness accounts. They're not something that was written later on, hundreds of years later. They're written by people who saw it. In fact, John writes this in John, 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. In other words, look, we, we saw him, we touched him, we talked with him, we, it wasn't just one time event either. It was over a period of time. We are eyewitnesses of who Jesus is. Back in 2006, a guy named Dr. Richard Baucom, who is a New Testament scholar at St. Andrews University in Scotland, wrote a book. And in this book, it, he really decided to tackle this issue. Were these eyewitnesses credible? He looked at all the criticism uh, that had been accumulated over the last several decades against the gospels and the gospel writers. He looked at the original text. He looked at the historical context. He looked at Jewish documents. He looked at all kinds of resources. And after a thorough study of this, which is by, by and large some of the most notable scholarship on this topic to date, he said in his professional opinion, these are credible accounts of eyewitnesses. This is what is happening here. He's saying, listen, we're not making this stuff up. By the way, these accounts were written 
Most of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written around 60 AD, about 30 years after the death of Jesus. John was written around 80, 85 to 90 AD because he lived longer. He was the last living, surviving disciple. And as an older man, he sat down and wrote his accounts. So these were certainly written within the lifespan of people that could either ver uh, verify it or vilify it, okay? Those, those accounts and those eyewitness records. So what we're looking at are eyewitness accounts. Now, when Peter is talking here, back to 1 Peter 1, when he's talking about being an eyewitness, he's also talking about a specific event that he saw that was really a game changer for him. So look at it uh, again in verse 17. He said, we received honor, or he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Now stop right there. I want, it's okay to write in your Bible, write in the margin of your Bible, Matthew 17. Matthew 17 is where you find the account of this story that he's talking about. And this is often called the Mount of Transfiguration. This happened late in Jesus' life, late in Jesus' ministry, about nine months before he died. He was up in the northern part of Israel, and uh, he calls Peter, James, and John to go with him to pray, which he did again in Gethsemane. Probably did that on multiple occasions. These were kind of his inner circle. And they go up to the mountain to pray. And as they are praying, something happened there that had never happened before. That Jesus, as he was praying, was transfigured before them. What does that mean? That means that all of a sudden, his hair turned white, his, his clothes began to glisten and radiate, that his eyes shone like the sun, it was almost as if he kind of for a moment just kind of peeled back his humanity to allow his eternal glory to be revealed for just that moment. And Peter, James, and John saw that. And then not only, that would certainly be enough to get your attention, but not only did that happen, but they heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, just like God had said at his baptism. Now he says it again here. And then he adds, listen to him. That was probably for Peter, all right? Peter, listen to him, all right? And so this would be clearly a memorable moment, right? Now, why did Jesus do that? Well, just prior to that, Jesus was talking about his coming, his second coming when he comes in glory. And he told his disciples, some of you are gonna see some of this before you die. And then he takes them to the mountain and he shows them his eternal glory. Very similar to what John saw, the vision of Jesus in, in Revelation chapter one and when he was on the island of Patmos. What does that mean? Peter said, I saw this, guys. I'm telling you, you can just hear him talking to this church. I saw him, I saw his glory, I heard the voice, I am an eyewitness to this. This Jesus is who he claimed to be. I, I'm a witness to it, I'm a witness. Now, you may say, well, Craig, that's, that's good to know about eyewitness accounts and boy that's that's certainly weighty evidence but isn't it true that eyewitness uh, eyewitnesses can be often disproven in a court of law I mean somebody says I saw the butler in the in the library with the candlestick you know and and sure enough on cross on cross-examination they didn't see what they thought they saw is that true well yes that's true so Peter doesn't say that all of our weight should rely on that piece, but it is a formidable piece of evidence. But he said there's another piece of evidence that's even more confident. In fact, look at what he says in the next verse. Look at verse uh, 19. 
He says, we also have, that is, there's a second piece of evidence here. We also have the prophetic word, strongly confirmed. And you do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, what is he saying there? Well, he says, we have a prophetic word. Uh, look at what your Bible says, your version of your Bible. King James Version translates it this way. We also have a more sure word of prophecy. More sure. More sure than even Peter's uh, eyewitness account. And the NIV puts it this way. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Basically, Peter's saying, yeah, I mean, it's great that I've seen this, and, but don't take my word for it. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that predicted how the Messiah would come that have been fulfilled in Jesus. And that's even more confidence that we have. Did you want, do you know, and I just want, I don't want to assume that you, under, you grasp this, that the, the predictive power of the Bible is wholly unique to the Bible. There's not like another sacred writings that predict the future like the Bible predicts the future. I mean, you don't get that in the book of Islam, right? You don't get that uh, through the book of Mormon. You don't get that through the writings of Buddha or whatever other group. You don't find this is wholly unique to the Bible that it actually predicts the future and it happens. I mean, we can't even do that when we, when we watch the weatherman, right? We can't even predict if it's going to be snow or not, right? Because even with all that we have, it's hard to predict the future. And the Bible does it over and over and over and over and over again. In fact, Hugh Ross, an astrophysicist and a, an apologist who came to Christ predominantly because he studied these prophetic predictions and their fulfillment, uh, said this, he, he, predict, he, he said that there are basically through his study about 2,000 prophecies uh, in the Bible. About 500 have yet to be fulfilled. So about 1,500 have already been fulfilled. There's all those 500 are, are wait, we're waiting uh, to find fulfillment. But he said this, looking at it from a statistical standpoint. He said, since the prophecies are for the most part independent from one another, the odds of all these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance without error is less than one in one to the two, uh, 10 to the 2,000th power. That is uh, one with 2,000 zeros behind it. In other words, basically he's saying that for these prophecies to be predicted and then come to pass, it's impossible. Or maybe you could say it's miraculous. Or maybe you could say it's supernatural for prophecies to be predicted and then hundreds of years later to actually be fulfilled. And, and he's saying that there are 2,000 prophecies like this in the Bible. Some large prophecies, some small. For example, let me give you just a couple examples. I'm just going to dip in my hands and just pull out a couple of similar, simple examples. One is in Genesis 15, where God goes to Abraham, and he tells Abraham a prophecy. Abraham, you're going to have a son. And not only are going to have a son, but he's going to become a great nation. Now he's going to become a great nation, but he's going to be enslaved for 400 years in a foreign nation. But God's going to judge that nation and bring condemnation on it. And they're going to come out with great wealth and great prosperity. And they're going to come back to this land, Abraham, where I'm talking to you. And they're going to settle this land. Did you know that that's exactly the story, the historical story of the people, the Jewish people? 
But that's exactly what happened. That through Isaac came the Jewish nation. They went to Egypt. They were there for 400 years. Uh, God brought the plagues against them, led them out through Moses, through the wilderness. They came out with all the prosperity. The Egyptian people were just giving them stuff as they walked out the door. And then they settled back in the land today that they have today. I mean, that, how do you explain that kind of accuracy of that prophecy given hundreds of years before? Well, it's just one. Here's another one. Isaiah uh, was a prophet, and he prophesied that there would be a man named Cyrus who would rise up to great leadership, that he would put down the great Babylonian empire, the great superpower of, the Babylon, uh, of Babylon, and that he would, he would release the Jewish people to, be, to go back to Jerusalem and to establish the temple there, and he would actually resource it and support that. Did you know that that actually took place? He called out the name of the man, Cyrus. And yet that was 450 years before Cyrus was ever born. 180 years before Cyrus ever accomplished any of these feats. How does a prophet in Israel know the name of the guy that's going to bring that to pass? Or there's another one in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, again, another prophet in the Bible, he predicted that because of God's judgment that even though there was fertility and water uh, available in the land of Edom, and they had experienced uh, a lot of growth, you know, and vegetation and so on there, that it would be because of the curse of God, a wasteland, and no one would settle there. Do you know what modern day Edom is today? It's Jordan. And if you look at the nation of Jordan, it is a utter wasteland. It is devastated. It cannot support life. My point here is this, these are just a handful. I mean, if you really wanna do the study, it's there for you to study. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, predicted, predicted and fulfilled, predicted and fulfilled. And of course, we're not even talking about the prophecies about the Messiah. There are hundreds of prophecies uh, about the Messiah. One scholar, J. Barton, um, Payne uh, identifies 574 different verses in the Old Testament talking about the Messiah, hundreds of prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies about the Messiah. And many of these he couldn't control, like when he was going to be born, the year of his birth, the lineage of his birth, where he was going to be born. Nobody could predict those things. How he would die. There are so many things that were prophesied in advance that Jesus fulfilled. Now listen, even a, an open-minded skeptic has got to deal with these things. How do you explain the predictions in the Bible that actually come true? Peter said, listen, we can know. We can have confidence. Don't just take my word for it as an eyewitness. Look at the prophecies that are fulfilled. In fact, look at verse 19, what he says. He said, you do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place. He said, you would, you would do well to pay attention to these prophecies and how they're fulfilled because they're gonna be a light to you. Peter was talking to Christians that were in a dark place. They were under persecution. They were questioning their faith. Listen, we're, we're living in dark times. Would you agree with that? I mean, we're still in the throes of a global pandemic. We are still wrestling with uncertainty and doubt. Some of you are still at home or are working through, you know, man, I don't know if it's safe to, to get out. And, and maybe you're dealing with people that are close to you that have passed away or people that are sick. And there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of worry and there's a lot of concern. 
And what he's saying is that what will give you confidence, what will give you light in the darkness is holding on to God's truth. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a light to my path, a lamp to my feet. And you do well and we would do well to hold on to these prophecies that give us great confidence. So he said, you can know, you can know that this is for real. One, because there are eyewitness people that, that saw it and they wrote it down. Secondly, that there are predictions in the Bible that actually came true. And not just one or two, but hundreds of them pertaining to Jesus. But then there's a third element that he mentions here, and I don't want to skip past it. If you're taking notes, write this third one down, and that is divine inspiration. Divine inspiration. Look at what he says in verse 20. He said, above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the great passages about the authority of Scripture. That no, no guy just decided to write the Bible. Another one is, is, uh, is 2 Timothy 3.16. It'd be great to write that in the margin of your Bible, right next to that verse, 2 Timothy 3.16. It says this, all scripture is God-breathed or literally inspired by God and useful for teaching, for correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. He's basically saying this, that these things that are predicted, these things that are written are not just some guy deciding to write, write a holy book. The Bible isn't a book that somebody decided to sit down and write, all right? Like, oh, uh, I think I'm going to start, I'm going to write the Bible today, honey. And I'm going to go off and sit on a tree and write a Bible. And then I'm going to start this religion. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. It does in other religions, but not with this book. This book is completely and wholly unique and different. For example, this book was written uh, is comprised of 66 books, right? 66 unique writings that comprise us. So when you hold your Bible, you're actually holding a library in your hand of 66 books. These books were written over a span of 1,500 years. 1,500 years span of time between the writing of the scriptures. Not only that, they're written by 40 different authors and writers. They were written in three different languages on three different continents. This book uh, was written by all different kinds of people and all different kinds of walks of life. It was written from people in prison and people in palaces. It was written in people on the battlefield and people on the shepherd's fields. It was written in the wilderness and it was written in times of prosperity. And yet all the diversity, all the writing, all the vast time frame, all of that, it has one singular message that always points to the person of Jesus Christ without error and without contradiction. Now, how in the world do you explain that? It is completely different than any other sacred writing that we possess today. And so he's like, no, no, listen, you gotta understand this. The only way that you can explain the scripture, Peter says, is that it has one author and that the author is the Holy Spirit. 
He said the Spirit of God uh, caused these things to be written down. He literally says that these were carried along. These, the Spirit moved them. This idea of carried along is the, the, the word that conjures up an idea of a sail that's filled with the wind and it moves along. He said these men were moved by the Holy Spirit to write down what they wrote and how they wrote it so that we could have it. Listen, we are incredibly blessed to have a copy of God's word. You understand that there are people around the world that do not have a copy of God's word. You may have 10 different versions in your home. You may have all, you, you may have the uh, men's uh, study Bible and the women's prayer Bible and the Patriot Bible and the, you know, just all, everybody's got their version, right? With their thing on it. But, but we have a copy of the word of God written and inspired by the Holy Spirit. The same the Holy Spirit that in, inspired the prophet to write down what he would not fully see with his own eyes. The same Holy Spirit that caused those eyewitnesses to write down their accounts is the same Holy Spirit that now moves in your heart and in your life that opens your eyes to truth, that, that allows you to understand the scripture so that you can know God. It's because he loves you that he has given you this book. It's a treasure. It's a treasure to us. And why is it that he has done that? Because this Holy Spirit wants to change your life. You look at the, you look at the line of church history from the beginning of Christ up until today, what you'll find is a long line, an unbroken chain of men and women's lives that were radically changed by Jesus. And these are not just people from Western civilization. These are people all over the world from different languages and contexts and time periods. And they all have one thing in common, that as they read the scripture, their eyes were open and they understood who Jesus was and they were radically saved. I mean, just today, if we wanted to have testimony, I could just put a, a mic right here in the front and say, everybody line up if Jesus has changed your life. And we could be here all day, people lining up one after the other saying, let me tell you what Jesus Christ did for me. How when I was reading the scripture, when I was hearing the scripture, that God changed my life. How do you explain that? That is the work of the Holy Spirit, inspiring the word and moving in your heart to change you. How can we have confidence that what we know about Jesus is true? Well, there are eyewitnesses. There's, there's predictive passages that have come true, but there's changed lives, changed by the work of God in fact, the Bible says that this scripture is like a sword. It's living and breathing and active. And as it goes out, it accomplishes what it seeks to accomplish. And you know what? You may be here today and you've had lots of questions. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know that I can believe that. I don't know what I believe. But listen, even now, if you will put him to the test, if you will open up this book, you say, God, show me if it's real. That same spirit that inspired this scripture will open your heart and change your life. In fact, that's why it was written. John tells us this, and I'll close with this verse. In John 20, 31, he talks about why the scripture is written. Look at what he says. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why we have the scripture. It's because Jesus loves you. God wants to reveal himself to you. He wants you to know who Jesus is. 
I remember as a college student asking lots of questions. Is it real? How do I know? I mean, I dug into the textual criticism. I looked at the archaeology. I looked at the, uh, the historicity. I looked at in, internal and external evidence for the Bible and Jesus. But after all that was said and done, it was the moving of God in my heart to verify that Jesus went to a cross because he loved me. And he gave me a copy of his word so that I could know him and I could follow him. And I emerged from that time with confidence that this that I hear about Jesus is real. Do you have that kind of confidence? I want you to bow your heads with me for just a minute. The whole story of the Bible from beginning to end is simply this, that God created you to know him in a deep and personal way. That's why you're created, that's your purpose. You're relational and God created you that way and he wants to have a relationship with you. God created you to know him and to follow him. And yet our sin has separated us from God. The sin in our own life because of who we are, the sin of our choices have separated us from God and we are lost, hopelessly lost, unable to ever find our way back. But in God's great love for us, great love for you, he sent his only son, Jesus, on a rescue mission. And Jesus came to reveal the Father. Jesus came to fulfill all these prophecies about him. The Holy One, the Chosen One, the Anointed One. He revealed the Father and then at Calvary, he went to a cross and on that cross, he paid the penalty for your sin. All of your sin, all your waywardness was placed on Jesus and he died on the cross for you. He went to a grave. And three days later, he rose again from the dead, alive. He showed himself to hundreds of people over 40 days, proving to be alive. He ascended to the Father, and he's left us with his message that anyone who turns to him in faith can find forgiveness and purpose and meaning and assurance of heaven. And soon he's coming again. He's coming sooner than you think. So here's a question for you. Isn't it time you said yes to Jesus? I mean, what are you waiting on? What next piece of evidence do you need? What more do you need? God loves you so much that he sent his son. That's the whole reason we celebrate Christmas. Isn't it time that you turn to him? So I wanna give you an opportunity to do that today. Just with your heads bowed and your heart of hearts, maybe right now God's speaking to your heart saying, this is it, this is it, now's your time. I wanna give you a chance to say yes to the Lord by simply praying, confessing your sin, asking Christ to forgive you, to come into your life. So with your heads bowed, the Spirit of God is tugging at your heart. He's pulling at you. He's convicting you. He's drawing you. That's the Spirit of God saying, now, this is your day. Just pray this simple prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I'm far from you. And I know I can never be good enough to be accepted by you. But I believe you died on a cross for me. And I believe you rose again from the dead. So I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Please wash me clean. Please make me a new person. 
today I choose to follow you and I call on your name and I choose to follow you from this day forward. Thank you for loving me. Now let me just pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for this book. Thank you, God, for your word that's true and reliable. Thank you, God, that you've revealed yourself to us in its pages. You revealed yourself to us ultimately, fully, and finally in Jesus. Thank you that in a season of uncertainty, we can be certain of who you are and we can be certain of what you called us to. Lord, I pray that we would hold out this hope of the gospel in this dark season, that those who are looking for hope would find their hope in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would walk in hope and walk in the truth as we walk through these days. Lord, we love you. Lord, tune our hearts to hear your voice and to follow you, especially during this Christmas season. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said,